new light on the games you love and the love in your games. And I totally just did finger guns at the microphone. I'm Lucy <laughs> Morris. And I'm Lauren Clinic. And welcome to episode four. Uh, thank you for all of the love you've given us. We have over 600 listens already. Hooray! Yeah, which is really delighting me. And yeah, all of the love that we're getting on Twitter and on Facebook and the subscriptions on Podbean has been super duper motivating. I've just come back from GDC as well, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. And there were a lot of people there that were very interested in talking to me about the podcast and more generally about the areas that, that we examine around love, sexuality and intimacy in games, which was really motivating to see. Yeah, um, I unfortunately was not at GDC. I was at home in Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, but I did take part in and helped run Not GDC, which was an um, online unconference for people that weren't able to or couldn't afford to make the trip to San Francisco and go to GDC. I don't think that we had any romance content in there as such. We did have a really cool PowerPoint slide talk about the top 10 gayest looks in Splatoon. Wow. And we had a, we had, I wrote a talk about radial menus. Uh, but yeah, that was also fun. Not GDC. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Lucy, I still need to go and check out all of the things from Not GDC. Is mm -hmm. everything collected online somewhere? Yes. So if you want to catch up on Not GDC, we had a really cool range of talks, anything from writing Unity shaders to a really, really good talk about representation of bees in video games. Wow. So if that interests you, you can go to www.notgdc.fun and uh, all of the all of the talks are listed there. There are Twitter threads, there are uh, YouTube videos, there are articles, and yeah, it was a really good week. And we heard a lot from developers we wouldn't have otherwise heard from. So yeah, it was good. That's fantastic. I'll definitely go and check that out because for me, I love when people get massively specific and niche on their talks. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people would say that our podcast is super niche and what we tend oh, yes. to yell about is super niche. So <laughs> I really appreciate people sharing knowledge like that. And when it comes to GDC, GDC, uh, it's a very expensive conference and getting access to the GDC vault where they store all of the recordings of all the talks, that access is very expensive. But if you go to YouTube, you can look up GDC vault, like, you know, a treasure or a bank vault. There's a lot of very, very, very good talks there. And I think there's about maybe five that touch on sort of romance and intimacy uh, in games or topics related. So definitely recommend that as well. Another thing that is kind of adjacent is that Play by Play, New Zealand's International Games Festival, is about to happen in two weeks, much to my great terror, uh, <laughs> uh, being one of the directors. But... Uh, that's shaping up to be a really cool week. We get a lot of Australian developers over. There's obviously a lot of Kiwi developers that join us there. And we've got some really interesting talks at the conference there, including one from Lucy B, who is an um, independent sex worker, who is talking about the importance of consent in video games. And I think that's a really important topic to cover, uh, especially with the advent of things like VR and AR. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I will report back to you on how that goes uh, in the next episode. Hell yes. Lucy, <laughs> Lucy B, I'm chatting to one Lucy, <laughs> talking about another Lucy. Yes. Uh, Lucy B is, is a really amazing person, and mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of working with her on a game jam at Heartbeat earlier mm -hmm. this year in Byron Bay. 
And we made a cool game about being an alien and going to get an STD test. And that was awesome. And just like her knowledge and her intelligence and how articulate she is about talking about consent and the representation of sex workers in games is completely amazing. So Mm -hmm. she'll be an amazing part of play by play. I love play by play. I wish I was going this year. (laughs) And so where can people check out information on the event, Lucy, and book a quick trip to New Zealand? (laughs) Yeah. So you'll have to be really quick because we're about to hit capacity. But if you want to find out more about the festival, we're at www.playbyplay.co.nz. Uh, Wellington is easily the coolest city in New Zealand, so we can guarantee you'll have a good time if you join us. But yes, it's two weeks away, so you better get your skates on if you, you want to come over <laughs> and have some fun with us. And Play by Play also puts the talks um, up on YouTube after. So, you know, you can check out the talks from last year. If you don't make it to this year, check out the talks um, in future. They're just an mm-hmm. awesome curated single stream of talks, which meant that when I went, I watched talks that I never would have chosen to go to at an event like GDC. So mm-hmm. totally loved it. The format of Love Games, Lauren, would you like mm-hmm. to remind our listeners what they're about to hear? So we'll have special episodes with interviews and participation from uh, guests from the industry. And in most of our episodes, we'll also involve the listeners by basically discussing questions that they've brought to us about games in particular or about these subjects more broadly as well. So um, as always, you can find us on the internet if you've got questions or comments on what we're about to talk about. But we should get to the exciting bit and talk about the the game for the week, Lucy. Yes, so the game of the week is also a, an Australasian game, which is great. It is mm. Florence by Mountains. Is it Mountains or Mountains Studio? It's just, just mountains. mountains. Let's just yeah. go with Mountains. Let's go with Mountains. Uh, a mobile interactive story about love and life. It's developed by Mountains of Melbourne, Australia, and it's published by Annapurna Interactive in LA. Uh, Mountains was founded by Ken Wong, who was the lead designer on Monument Valley, another acclaimed mobile game, and he's also done a lot of other cool work. So Mm. he's... I actually first uh, found out about Ken long before I returned to New Zealand from Germany when he released Hacky Cat. (laughs) <laughs> and when I found out, like, all these years later that, like, after we had been introduced and like, we got to know each other that he had made Hacky Cat, I was like, oh my gosh! <laughs> I remember that game so intensely. Uh, he's also um, been the art director on Alice Madness Returns uh, for Spicy Horse, so he's done a lot of cool stuff, mm-hmm. and Florence is also cool stuff. So today yes. we're going to have a quick chat about that. Absolutely. So Florence is a premium game on mobile, so it'll cost you the cost of a coffee in US dollars. Um, Just adjust that for whatever your domestic currency is. And so it's out on iOS, so you can play it on um, Apple hand devices um, or tablets. And I believe it has come to Android now. So you've also been able to play it, right, Lucy? (laughs) Yes, it's definitely on Android because that's all I have. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. So a bit of a disclaimer for me, uh, where my company works in Melbourne, Australia, works out of the Arcade, which is a co-working space in South Melbourne. And my office actually shares a wall with mountains. So I'm right next door to Ken and his team. Uh, I, I count all of the team as friends of mine. We haven't been involved in the development of the game, but we did sort of 
see it, see it get born and see it develop into the the beautiful game child that it is. I did play an early build of the game, but I'm going to be talking about my experiences and my thoughts as focused as possible on the launch version itself. So I'm not going to refer to anything that, you know, players that get it today won't won't experience as well. Cool. I, I don't need know if I need to do a disclaimer uh, myself. I mean, I'm rather fond of the dev team, but mm. I do not share a wall with them, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I wish I did. But yeah, I'm excited to talk about this game. There are some really cool experimental narrative things coming out of Australasia at the moment. And the fact that one of these is a mobile game about the normalities of romance is really exciting. Yes, Yay. it's very good. And as always, huge spoiler warnings. We will completely oh, yes. spoil the game. <laughs> yes, oh boy. And it's yes. not long. So if you haven't played it, definitely pause now and go mm. play it. It won't take you very long. It'll take you maybe 30 to 40 minutes to get through it all. Uh, so yes, skip this episode if you haven't played it yet, because otherwise we will totally ruin it for you. Absolutely. And it will be better just experienced. So ideal setting for the game, Lucy, I'm thinking, you know, low lights, you know, you know, got to play it with the sound on super important, you know, Mm -hmm. don't neglect that, even though it's a mobile game, don't try and play it on the train. Like it's a real, you know, sit down in front of the fire or on the couch or, you know, with someone that you're dating, maybe that'd be a cute little Mm -hmm. date night game, I reckon. Or, you know, maybe you'll just cry about your ex too much and it wouldn't be a good idea for a date night. But um, No, crying yeah, bad. Well, yeah. crying's not bad, but yeah. I was just going to say, it's one of those games that you have to give breathing room. I-, I would suggest trying to sit down and play all of it at once and not break it up. Okay. Yes. So when I played Florence, I had actually come home sick from work that afternoon because <laughs> uh, I've been a bit ill recently and... I didn't want to sit down and like use the PC more so I got into bed and I tucked myself up in lots of covers and got my phone out and I was like okay it's time to play Florence so <laughs> it was a really good um a really good feel good game mm. that I could play when I wasn't feeling great uh, mm. and you also really should play it with headphones on and mm. this was weird for me because I Despite working in mobile games, I never play mobile games with the sound on. So this was very different experience. <laughs> I have to admit that I was the same. <laughs> like I do turn off the sound a lot mm-hmm. um, with mobile. But with this one, I didn't play with headphones. But every time I've played it, I've played it on a tablet, which has been really nice. Mm-hmm. Like to have a larger screen for it and just letting the music come out through through the device. But but yeah, audio is definitely a must for this one if you are a hearing person. Yeah, they recommend that you put headphones on at the start of the game. So mm, I should try there's that. those affordances and you should follow them. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the format of Florence and why are we talking about Florence for love games this week? Yes, so Florence, uh, for better or worse, are one of those classic games that some people on the internet will say, this isn't even a game, (laughs) Um, because it's short, because you can't fail the game, like you just, it's very difficult to not progress the game. Uh, Lucy and I have talked about this on the show before, we don't think it's a useful or interesting conversation to say whether or not something is a game. Mm -hmm. The team itself describe it as an interactive story. Um, And for me, it blends together beautiful parts of graphic novels and comics with interactivity and with games. So it could be described almost as a quasi uh, 
even almost like a visual novel type of Mm -hmm. genre game. The game's relevant for this podcast because it is an exploration of relationships. They say that it's a first love story for the main protagonist who's called Florence. And it is about kind of like the, I don't know, like the consequences of falling for someone. And Mm -hmm. to me, I interpret it as the effects that your previous relationships have on you. Um, and an acknowledgement that relationships, especially early loves, like aren't aren't forever a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. They'll have a mark on you, and then you'll both you'll both move on. Um, so yeah. the game's very relevant for the podcast because it is like a beautiful meditation on relationships, almost. Also, regarding the format, I think it's really important to call out the fact that this is a mobile game. There's mm. not a lot of serious, um, well, I was going to say long form, mm. short form, any form narrative games on mobile, really. It's not the format you would expect this type of game to be on. And we will probably talk about this a little bit in the next section, um, how it being on mobile and not on PC actually helps the story a lot and is a lot more relevant to, to how they're telling it than it would have been sitting at a keyboard with a mouse. So I think it's really important to recognise that it is an experimental game mm. on mobile, which is quite rare, and they've leveraged the affordances of the mobile platform to their advantage, which mm. I'll talk about because I'm a huge UX nerd. Yay. <laughs> awesome! And yet yeah. there there isn't much premium romance content on mobile, and of that premium romance-related content on mobile, a lot of it is um, word, word-heavy word narrative or choice mm-hmm. and branching, and this is also linear as well. So there's a lot of things about the format of Florence that's really interesting, as well as the content. Yeah. So that seems like a good springboard to ask the question, what did they do well in Florence? There's a lot of things. So we talked about Doki Doki Literature Club oh last boy. fortnight and we <laughs> we were angry. Oh, yeah. we, we were not happy. We didn't always love that game. <laughs> Whereas I would say overall we feel really positive uh, towards Florence um, for a whole lot of reasons. And there's a lot of things to talk about in terms of what the game uh, does well. Something that we've talked about mm-hmm. a little bit uh, is music and sound. So... The soundtrack is by Kevin Penkin, who I believe is originally Australian, but now I think is based in the UK or in London. He's uh, He's been quite well known for doing uh, music for games, but also for a lot of anime as well. And actually like has done collaborations with Nobuo Uematsu and what? really... No- I know, I know. And, like, really <laughs> I have no idea. Folks, yeah. Um, I, I had no idea either. Hmm. And uh, so he did the, the music. The soundtrack is very, very beautiful. It's really notable in this game that it's a narrative game, but it's also a wordless one in that, you know, there's there's almost no written communication or dialogue between the characters, except for one chapter where you're chatting to your mum. And uh, when you have games that don't have written dialogue or voice acting, etc., you find that the sound and the music does more of the emotional heavy lifting. And in this game, there's a very interesting uh, something that I realized when playing is that Krish, the the male character, his voice or his character is almost expressed through the cello music. And then Florence and her voice is expressed through the violin music, which I realized more the second time I played it. So music starts replacing Mm. voices almost. And the music ends up doing a lot of the 
yeah, the emotional um, heavy lifting, the intensity delivery for me at least. And so the music was really like pulling me along and giving me very strong feelings. <laughs> that's really cool. I had, yeah, I didn't actually think about that, but yeah, yeah that's a really good point. And I see more and more games actually uh, using customization and in instruments to interface with characters better. Mm. It's kind of a tangent, but you can do the same thing in Divinity Original Sin 2 when you're constructing your character. You can choose an instrument for that character, which... Uh, will come in over the top of other music during critical moments if your character takes a significant action, which is really cool. And I think it's awesome that Florence is uh, using this kind of uh, power in music as well. Yeah, that's really, really cool about Divinity. I still have to play that. Oh boy, yes, there's so much to talk about. (laughs) I think think that has to be one of my big games that I play through so that we can talk about it on a big old, big old episode because people are yelling about the relationships in that game, which is very exciting. I will happily join that yelling. Anyway, back to Florence. Mm. Mm. (laughs) So um, what I enjoyed about Florence, um, as a UI UX designer, I just mentioned about the affordances that the mobile platform gives you. So when you're using a PC, you'll have the affordances of using like a controller or a a keyboard or a mouse. But when you're on mobile, you have the touch screen and touch input. And uh, that is really integral to how Florence... It gets you to interface with the story and interface with the game. So what I really liked is the use of diegetic interactions. And when I say diegetic in a UX sense, I mean actions that you take that are inside the game and part of the game's geometry. So the actions you take you take are contextually relevant to what you're playing. So the diegetic interactions that I really liked were things like the photo shaking in the game mm. where... Um, Florence and Chris are going around Melbourne. I think it's really cool it's set in Melbourne. There are not many games set in Australasia, so I thought (laughs) that was great. (laughs) So cool! Mm. Uh, And you take these Polaroids of these different memories happening across Melbourne, and you have to physically shake the screen with your finger to um, get the photo to develop like you would a normal Polaroid. And that was really cool, because uh, diegetic UI UX is used to immerse the player and not break the player out of the flow state, And it's a really good way of getting them to interface more with the story, to engage them more. And I think that was a really smart way of doing it. Also with the wordless thing, I thought that was really cool too. I also really enjoyed the fact that they, the game is so um, diverse and multicultural. Um, Mm. My, my weird backstory is that I never studied games. I actually have a double honors degree in Mandarin and Japanese. (laughs) So, so when I saw Mandarin in the game, I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, you know, there's, there's foreign language, there's, you know, so many layers of talking about communication, um, between people. And I thought that was, that was just really human and really endearing. Yeah. And And the character of Florence is Chinese Australian and the developer Ken Wong is Chinese Australian. And I remember talking Mm. to him about comfort zones when you're writing about characters. And he was like, well, I'm really writing from the perspective of this woman and it's very important that I talk to my sister and I talk to Kamina on my team and talk to women about how they perceive a lot of things in in relationships and outside of relationships. So the gender part is outside of my comfort zone, but Mm -hmm. all of the scenes about her mum and pressure from her family and a few gentle, light-touch cultural things did come from his own experience, which I thought was very, very cool. 
I really liked that. Um, just small things, like, for instance, when you are unpacking Krish's stuff into Florence's kitchen, like, the different condiments and the different, like, cooking implements that they use correlate directly to their cultural background were just really... Like, it makes the story more real, and mm. it made it... Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Mm. If I can jump in for a moment, talking about the diegetic interactions. So diegetic as a term makes you sound very intelligent when you can <laughs> use you. it correctly. <laughs> uh, I hope I, I did. <laughs> I've, I've had to Google it a lot because I'll work with some people and they talk about diegetic sound or diegetic interactions. And I've had to check that I'm referring to the right thing when I talk about it. But I definitely think, yeah, the diegetic interactions in this game are very, very good. Um, within the game and the way the interactions work um, is very, very beautiful. Something else that I liked is also just the touch inputs with the game. Mm. So if someone's played Monument Valley, which also has touch inputs and is also wordless, both Florence and Monument Valley do a very good job of tutorialing wordlessly and with using touch Mm. controls really, really well. And it's something that I've heard Ken speak on before and other members of the team is that hardware and standard controller inputs with physical controllers may have led or contributed to quite homogenous games being made Mm. and compounding the issue of required games literacy for people to be able to get into a game, right? And their love for mobile games because it puts that aside and it has this broad customer base that don't have opinions about what a heads-up display looks like or what an extra life needs to look like. It just kind of breaks it open, which (laughs) I think is really good. I was just going to say, I have so many, so many thoughts on that topic. Oh my god, I'm about to explode. I totally agree, and that's partly why I like out out controls or alternative controllers so much, is because I agree that the fact we have keyboards, mice, and controllers has really limited us to thinking about how we control our games using those peripherals, and it seems like games as a, as a software have evolved really, really quickly, but we're still using keyboards when we use them, you know, in the 90s and in the 80s, and, like, we're still stuck in these paradigms. I think it's really smart that they are thinking outside the box like that and uh, maximising the use of new technology like mobile, which is giving them new affordances and new possibilities. Yes. I'm nodding so much, which nobody can see and might just be rustling their <laughs> headphones, but I'm agreeing a lot. <laughs> I can hear I'm... no rustling. You're all good. <laughs> good. I mean, even when, for example, my partner is playing a video game and I've just been playing a video game on, let's say, uh, the PlayStation 4 and mm-hmm. he's playing on the Switch and I go, hey, it looks like, th- okay, this is a true story. This really happened. <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of stuck. I say, okay, I'll, I'll grab it. I could probably do it. And then I get really far and then die and then instinctively press the button my finger is hovering over on that controller, which cancels out of saving. <laughs> like, because oh, no. I instinctively was like, on this controller, transfers to that controller for accept and not deny. Like, my, oh, man. you know, like there's such an instinct there that, yes, I know exactly how a controller behaves without mm. looking down, <laughs> which yeah. is a problem. Not just because I deleted a whole bunch of his progress. But... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but, but also, yeah, but also that it's, you know, as a game developer, I'm not going to be thinking about how to map my controls. I'll just go with the default and yeah. you lose you lose some innovation there. 
yeah, like about that, it's really hard. I've done that a lot on the Switch too because. Uh, east, uh, Eastern controllers have different layouts to Western controllers, and it's just a very, very small set of differences. But it's enough to be annoying because we've learned those uh, affordances from the controllers. Very difficult. <sighs> so, talking about the the mysterious and the different and the innovative, I'd love mm. some of your thoughts on the abstract metaphors that mm. are in Florence as well. Yes. So, this is Lisa uh, gushing about UX UI sort of thing. Um, I really enjoyed the abstract metaphors that they used to talk about communication again. So I mentioned that I enjoyed the fact that they included different languages and like, of course, there's English subtitles, but I really enjoyed the abstract metaphors of the speech bubbles, which Florence and Chris used to talk to each other. So it is wordless. They don't have text or dialogue that they say to each other, but instead they talk using jigsaw puzzles. And you've got to use these little jigsaw pieces to fill in the speech bubbles and complete your whatever you're saying to him to continue the conversation. And I really liked the fact that they represented um, conflict in the relationship by changing these jigsaw pieces. So if things are going fine and Florence and Chris are happy, the jigsaw pieces are very normal. They've got rounded corners. They fit together very easily. But if they are having a conflict or an argument, the jigsaw pieces start to become jagged and blocky and there are like really hard angles, which, you know, seem quite aggressive. And I thought that was a really good way of representing a conflict in a relationship, conflict in communication without actually using any words or any dialogue spoken or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My inner cynic is like, yay, saving on localization <laughs> costs. <laughs> oh yeah, no, totally. That's also, no, it's a really smart business decision. <clears throat> it's a really smart business decision, which is a really hard couple of words to say after each other. Uh, <laughs> if you want to have a hit game and you want to reach as many people as possible, localization costs are a very real thing you have to think about. And if you're producing, say, a text-heavy game, you'll be keeping a close eye on how many strings they are, um, strings being the lines of dialogue, and how much that's going to cost you to get a um, firm to translate that into X number of languages. So it is actually a very smart production move to make your game wordless and, you know, save on all of these costs in your overhead. <laughs> you need to be a great designer to pull it off and, and have it be oh, yeah. anywhere near as subtle and beautiful as Florence is. But mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the impact of it, uh, the first time I was playing it and I realized that the puzzles were becoming simpler as Florence and Krish were getting along together and relaxing together, I was just really mm. emotional once I realized that that's what the game was showing me. And mm. then there was a parallel later in the game where... Krish and Florence, you know, they've been in a relationship for a long time, but then they're starting to get stifled. And then the things that were inspiring each other are now causing frustration. And then when you have uh, a certain chapter where their relationship and their embrace is a puzzle that's drifting apart Mm. and you can't fix it, like you can't make it stay together at that point, was a really like a painful parallel to the puzzle (laughs) metaphor for me. I was like, oh no. I see what they're doing. <laughs> I also found that minigame the hardest to complete as well because the edges to the pieces aren't as defined and the pieces mm. like start floating away even if you're putting them together. So I actually, I took the longest on that one because it was really hard to like drag them all together. But it was a really good metaphor that I agree was really effective. Okay, but we could, we could sing praises about this game all day. 
of which we yes. do not have all day because it is in fact night and we've both come home from a long day of work. <laughs> um, what do we think that they could have possibly done better or maybe they didn't do so well with? Yeah, I mean, with this game, I was fully prepared for it to go into the Wes Anderson effect of being far too clever and whimsical and not really saying anything of substance, but they countered the Wes Anderson effect by having both main characters be people of colour as well, which Mm. Wes Anderson fails at all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, the game, in in terms of its limitations... The structure itself and it being linear means that there was so much pressure on the end of the game of what the end of the game was saying. Mm. So the end of the game for me both says a lot and also maybe doesn't say enough or maybe isn't as refined as the tone in the other chapters a little bit at the end. Like I wasn't quite ready to let go of the game or let go of Florence when the game actually ended and in that last chapter. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm not sure how I feel completely about the emotional resonance of the very end of the game. Mm. Yeah. As a limitation. I'm not sure if anyone else shares this uh, opinion, which is highly likely. Um, But I felt a bit weird about Krish going to music school. So there's a scene where um, Florence comes to Chris's house and she sees an application form for a music school under his bed because he's a cellist. And uh, one of the signature scenes of the game is her hearing his cello music and being pulled towards him um, when she's out walking. And he's really happy in that scene and he's really enjoying what he's doing. He's just playing in public. Um, He's obviously really happy. And uh, she physically pushes him to go and mm. uh, apply at this music school. Like, you physically have to push him through the mm. door. And first of all, that would give me the impression that he is, like, reluctant and not really willing to do so. And second, mm. after the story progresses, he's really unhappy. So I don't think there's many times, if any, after he applies to the school that he appears happy with the cello again. Mm. And that made me really sad that, Mm. you know, he was really heavily encouraged to sign up for this thing. And now in all the scenes he appears in with this cello, he's now tired and looks upset and angry. And it's like causing conflict in their relationship. And I felt really kind of weird about that. Um, It's obviously just a your mileage may vary thing with the story. But it was really noticeable to me that he was so unhappy after that point. And I think that's a really fair thing to say um, as well in the game because what Florence was doing about his goals and and the way he was behaving towards her did end up causing tension and did contribute to the relationship ending and them having this resentment and this tension as well. So I Mm. think, I think, yeah, it does make sense. And it's a really good point that you think, oh, it's so nice. He, he, you know, she really supported him to go to music school, but then yeah, when he's really stressed out and the reality of trying to be a professional musician of the traditional school has these really harsh consequences, which I thought, you know, it had really real things to say about what it is like to try and be a creative and try and follow traditional pathways to success as a creative as well, which was, which was really, really tense. So I feel like it has a few things to say about like good intentions and her perception of what is good for him and his perception of what is good for him. Because it seems like Florence 
thinks that this will be good for him and that he will enjoy it and he's it seems almost like he would rather keep it as the hobby where he's happy playing in the park and you don't want in a relationship to push your partner into something they're not 100% into yes like yeah it seemed weird anyway yeah Someone once said to me, never fall in love with a man's potential. And that really hit home for me um, at the time, because there's a lot to be said about emotional labor. There's a lot to be said about women trying to fix men or Mm. trying to improve them or Mm. taking way too much responsibility for their own insecurities or things that are perceived to hold them back. Uh, And regarding emotional labor, Lucy and I both read a very excellent essay called uh, We Need to Talk About Florence and Emotional Labour by Marlianne Butt. Mm. So we should definitely link that when this episode comes out because it's a very good essay. It's very hard to actually find critique or negatives about this game because it was critically loved, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And when this arrived, it was a very, very good analysis and critique of emotional labour in Florence. So Lucy, I think you also found a lot of interesting points in that as well. Yeah, so I remember reading this when it first came out because um, she wrote it pretty soon after Florence was released. Mm. Uh, So Marlene is a doctoral candidate at the University of Sydney? Mm. Yes, she is. Cool. (laughs) Just checking. And uh, her article is really thorough. It talks about the aesthetics and gameplay mechanics um, and how... They could be interpreted by the player as um, emotional labour on Florence's part. Obviously, some of the examples she talks about, like, it is all about interpretation, um, which is especially important when you're being uh, non-explicit in a wordless game. It's really mm. hard to make sure that things are framed exactly as you want them, because visuals, are, like, a picture will say a thousand words or whatever, right? So... It's really difficult to hold the hand of a player when you're using only imagery. Some of the specific examples that she uses um, to critique Florence is there's a scene where Florence goes to Chris's apartment and the player has to tidy up the apartment and put like his clothes away and tidy up his bed and throw junk out. And because it's a wordless game, it's not immediately apparent that Krish is doing that because for the majority of the game you're positioned as empathizing with Florence as the protagonist so it could be interpreted that Florence was cleaning the room and again this ties into what Lauren was saying about um, emotional labor and relationships where you know women have to fix men and to you know make their spaces better and enrich their life etc and Mm. not negatively about the game or anything but just identifying some areas where the context isn't like super apparent can Mm. lead to some different interpretations about their relationship she also refers to the scene where Chris is being pushed towards the music school as well and about that entire signing up to music school and Florence's dreams and the importance of his dreams versus her dreams it's a really good read and Mm. um Marlene wrote, wrote it really really well I'd heavily suggest reading it um you can read it for free on Tumblr and we'll link it on our Twitter after we publish this episode hell yes and it's really important to be really encouraging of this type of work because when a game comes out even if you love it it's very good to mindfully engage in what what might have crept through subconsciously or what is worth Mm. discussing 
And so it doesn't, you know, it's never going to be all or nothing. There's no game that Lucy and I are going to discuss that we 110% love or 110% hate and won't acknowledge what it's done well or the limitations that we see. And so even if you love a game like this, you know, you shouldn't uh, get super mad that people are critically and consciously um, engaging with the game. And to the credit of the team, the team did a really good job of, uh, of supporting the article and thanking mm. her for some really attentive, uh, very smart academic work on it, which is great. Yeah, and it's important to encourage critical analysis as well, not just plain negative criticism. Like, you should be able to back up criticism with good reasons or good thought processes. But it's important to encourage critical analyses because it's the way that we get better as developers and artists. Like, even if I was a developer and, you know, someone looked at my work and they said 100% good things about it, that doesn't help me grow as a developer. That just strokes my ego. And while that's nice, um, <laughs> it's it's good to know areas where we can improve. Otherwise, we will coast. So, yeah, just that's just a general life rule. You should always give people constructive criticism because it's useful. <laughs> Completely agree. And just a quick <laughs> note when we talk about the developers and how we all better ourselves, a little bit about the influences of this game before we go on to some listener questions. This game, we talked a lot about the format, how interesting and how different it looks and how it plays. It's definitely a game that has been influenced by slice of life graphic novels and by web comics. The office for mountains is full of plants and soft furnishings and lovely lovely colors and lovely use of color the use of color in florence as well as the use of color in monument valley is really amazing and very conscious and i definitely hope that it'll be studied um for for the use of color as well in future and the whole team as well are uh, you know a team that to me really show an example of not worshipping at the altar of, of video games. Like, mm. they they all have really varied interests outside of work, whether that be sports, film, reading, like comics, whatever it may be. All of the team really enjoy different forms of media and really like engaging with um, non-standard different forms of media. And I think that's really had an impact in how innovative and thoughtful Florence ended up being. Definitely. And just on a broader note, I think it makes you a better developer if you are interdisciplinary. Like, not necessarily professionally, but you can't live, breathe, and consume games as 100% of your being. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. It would <laughs> because, not make you better. <laughs> yeah, like, having a diverse range of interests will give you a diverse range of experiences, which you, then you can bring to your, your games and your creations, which is really important. Um, I did a study a few years back that studied the interdisciplinary nature of qualifications of people in games. And the vast minority had games degrees. We have like lawyers and people from biochem and people that studied languages and theatre and like Egyptology and stuff. Like it's really cool. Um, diversify yourself and you'll make better art, I guess. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Want to be a better designer? Go read a totally unrelated book. <laughs> mm -hmm. It will come back and it will strengthen you. So right. having a look at listener questions as well. So we yes. had a tweet from Zach Colley on Twitter asking about our thoughts on emotional labor and how it applies to the game and mm -hmm. link directly to Marianne's piece, which is great. 
So, yes. Zach, you are on the money. We have, <laughs> we have covered it. Heck yeah, we are one step ahead. Actually, we saw your comment before we started the episode and <laughs> made sure that we talked about it. Absolutely. Um, also, Sup Sup Hannah, with the username Hentai, says, I started playing yesterday and nearly immediately started sobbing lol. Aww. Oh. <laughs> it is a really emotional game and I think that's partly why it's so successful is because the story is so relatable and it's a lot of experiences that a lot of us have gone through. Um, the first love and the severe heartbreak and the letting go and yeah. And talking about different influences on games, I appreciate so much that this team would have, I imagine, gotten together and talked about breakups and talked mm. about past relationships that influenced them positively. It means there are so few games that talk about relationships that are good and non-dramatic, you know, are very mundane and very human, and they're not forever relationships. Like, you have a breakup. Those are all super-duper relatable. Not enough game developers get to draw on their own experiences of heartbreak or tension or pushing someone too much. You know, it's not all unicorns and broadswords. <laughs> so, Ooh, yeah, I really That's a good episode title. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked the scene when... Florence is cleaning her desk when she's decided to give up her accounting job and go to be an artist and underneath her keyboard is a photo of Krish and her really happy and when she sees this at the end of the game I thought it was really neat that she's not upset or not you know angry or whatever she just looks at it and smiles and then puts it in her box and keeps it and I thought that was a really nice summation of the journey that she had taken in the in the game. It definitely was. And talking about her packing up her bag um, to leave work because she's decided to, to give art a go is actually reminds me of another limitation in that Florence is kind of saying that if you want to be a creative, you do kind of need to commit massively. Like um, it doesn't talk about being a creative that lets it stay as a small hobby part of your life. I mean, we yeah. don't see Krish. We don't know if, if that's the way he ends up relating to music in the future we don't know if he quits forever or he's a hobbyist or if he does end up going and becoming a really famous um, artist um, or musician but it is sort of saying he, that's what he did and that's what Florence does too and that was the best thing for her so I think that is kind of a limitation as well but mm -hmm. I'm really happy for it to be a linear story that does have a particular message and obviously it's made by game developers so we do believe in creative risk and commitment <laughs> Yeah, and it's also a scope thing. It's impossible mm. to make a story with a million endings that will suit a million different perspectives and a million different experiences. Uh, sometimes you just have to make a linear experience uh, and tailor that to the exact message that you want to tell because that's what your budget is, that's the message that you're set on, set on telling, and that's the format that's best for you. So yeah. there's nothing wrong with linear games, <laughs> despite a lot of discourse around that. So next question, at Foxes for Sale, which is another fantastic username, uh, asks, what aspects of the story of Florence, which I loved, were emphasised uniquely because it was a game rather than an animation or a comic? Do you think this type of game could tell a longer story or was it powerful as it was in part due to the fact it was quite short? The moments where it uses game language to make me feel like I'm having a positive impact on the story but then reminding me when I didn't have control and I couldn't get a good ending and I couldn't keep them together. The way that it swapped between the tools of 
more of a game and then took that control away. And for me, it was that juxtaposition that made it even more impactful than it might as a, you know, a Pixar animation or just mm. a comic. That was a really good summation. <laughs> I, I really, I really enjoyed that. Well, um, I was going to say something really smart and now I've forgotten what it was because I was writing down unicorns and broadswords uh, on my piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which isn't super related to the tone of Florence, but that's okay. <laughs> no. So it doesn't matter. Neither was crying. Oh, actually, crying noises was. It okay. super was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, an aspect I really thought added to Florence and the fact it was a game was the di- most difficult part for me during the game was, again, when Crash is moving into Florence's place and you as Florence, I assume, uh, you're trying to decide what of your stuff to put away because you have a box in the bottom right for storage and what of his stuff to put in. And it really stressed me out because there's not enough space for everything and you will probably want to reach an equilibrium with your partner so you have some of his stuff and some of your stuff. And I was like, really stressed out about this, having to make all of these decisions about what to put in the box and what of his to put up and what of mine to put away. And oh my god, it was really really stressful because that is a very real problem when someone moves into your space. And especially if that space is not big, uh, you'll have to come to a compromise on... Who's, whose couch are you going to keep? Or whose duvet are you going to keep? Or who gets to put the pictures on the wall? Like, yeah, it's stressful because um, space and decoration are a large part of your identity and the objects that you have that have memories attached to them. Like when you're putting things on uh, Florence's bookcase or Florence and Chris's bookcase, there are like photos of family and uh, I think there's like a religious um, idol that Chris has and all that sort of stuff. It's just so much to think of, and I don't think they could have achieved that with a animation or a comic, that inner conflict of, am I doing enough, and are they going to be comfortable here? So, And I was stressed out because there was no feedback on, am I doing it right? Like, yeah. I w- <laughs> Whereas in some <laughs> games, there'll be scores and stuff, and it didn't have that. So I was like, am I Krish throwing out my new girlfriend's stuff, or yeah. am I Florence trying to be like, will I let him have this shitty cricket bat? Like, <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, what happens if I throw all of his stuff in the bin? Like, yeah. I don't know. It's, I know. Yeah, it stressed me out. And yeah. it was it was like a good stress because it is a very real problem. And oh. I think that's the only customization you can have, except for some of the painting or art related mm. type chapters, because yeah. everything else is kind of a, a linear state or there's one way to complete it or one way to progress. But the amount that you let Krish have his stuff or, you know, or otherwise um, is one of the few customizable personal different experiences. So, you know, I'd play mm-hmm. it and then a friend would play it and I'd say, you know, did you what what did you do for the, the kitchen split? Like, mm. you know, and they're like, oh, I had I had two Vegemites. I didn't care about his spices or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> It was really good. It was it's really, funny because really when I went through and did that mini game, like I tried to keep things that were maybe like culturally or personally important to him. Mm. But he had a nicer toaster, so I chucked my toaster out and like took his toaster because it was nicer. So <laughs> there's some there's some functional and some emotional in there, I guess. And that's that's real life. That <laughs> yeah. that is relationships. <laughs> Uh, in in terms of the part of the question, do we think this type of game could tell a longer story or was it as powerful as it was in part due to its brevity? For me, I was really happy about how brief it was because mm. I love games that I can sit down and just digest in one setting. 
experience the whole emotional roller coaster and make it more likely that I can find other people to discuss it with, you know, like Lucy and like like the listeners that have played this game now. So I really love brevity. Uh, I think Lucy and I both do. We might be outliers. We're very time poor, <laughs> grumpy old nanas. Um, <laughs> That's true. But uh, but yeah, I think it was powerful because it was brief and it was linear and uh, and it was limited. You know, yeah. like, like life. Yeah. Oh, deep. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of discourse to be had about that. Probably more than we have time for because games like you could tell a story like this in 40 hours if you want to or you could tell a story like this in 30 minutes like Florence does um it really boils down to what kind of reactions you want to get out of the player um what kind of session time you want the player to have because Florence can be played in one session you can finish the whole thing and then go off and think about it if you made it several sessions on mobile like it's really easy to churn out of mobile games so uh, they might have lost the player if they had made it longer format um so retention is something we have to think about quite a lot when you're in mobile development and you could make Florence a longer form but I don't think they needed to because their message was quite succinct and yeah that's that's about all I have to offer there. Hmm. What I would like would be more Florence-like moments within larger games. I really like Mm. when a larger game lets you have small domestic intimate quiet moments between characters Mm. where maybe you are doing diegetic um, motions within the game or you're just having you're having tension or something is uh, for example in AAA you'll very rarely see something uh, represented by abstract metaphor whereas Mm. in a lot of indie games you would see abstract metaphor both for cost reasons but also you know you're in a universe that isn't obsessed with realism for example So I'd like more games to have Florence-like moments or be brave enough to explore the tone and the relatable life moments that Florence does explore. But I don't think games like Florence need to be bigger or longer or bigger budget, if that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) You always make a lot of sense, Lucy. Shucks. (laughs) Right. Um, We are coming up to time. Thank you for joining us on this episode and we will be back in two weeks with another episode, the game of which we have not yet picked. So if there is something that you would like to recommend us, you can reach us on Twitter at LoveGamesCast or hashtag LoveGamesCast. You can submit us any kinds of suggestions. We've already had a couple of people tweet at us uh, asking about Dragon Age. We will totally talk about Dragon Age. Like, Lauren and I are both huge fans of Bioware, and especially, I think we're both Dragon Age fans more than Mass Effect fans. Mm, contentious. So, yeah, oh yeah. So that's definitely going to get talked about. But if you have a specific suggestion, definitely send us stuff. We are open to anything with romance and sex in it, so like, feel free to send us like fluffy games, dirty games, like go for it. Like we're up for anything. <laughs> we'll play anything, and we'll talk about some of it. <laughs> we'll talk about what we can. <laughs> well, thank you again so much, Lucy, and thank you so much to the listeners. And I will chat to you all again soon. All right, bye, friends. See ya.
beans. <laughs> Hang on, let me get a let me get a clean buy beans. Um, oh, I'm smiling too much now. Bye beans. There you go. <laughs> you can put I'll that in. Get if you a want. beans. I will. <laughs>